1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com historyextra History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh... Whether you're working out or working on your high score, you never settle for less. So why should it be any different when you choose your protein drink? Rockin' Protein comes in three delicious flavors, has 30 grams of protein, and is always made with fresh milk. So you're never left with that chalky taste. Rockin' Protein. Never settle for less than a great-tasting, high-quality protein drink. Visit rockinprotein.com to find Rockin' Protein wherever you are. Rockin' Protein and Shamrock Farms are registered trademarks of Shamrock Foods Company.
0: In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the psychiatrist and historian George Macari. George has just written a book about the history of xenophobia, examining the surprising origins of the term and the ways in which Western thinkers have interpreted people's fear of strangers from the 19th century to the present day. He was joined in conversation by BBC History Revealed's production editor, John Borkham.
2: So I'm delighted to be speaking here today with George Macari, who is a psychiatrist, a historian, and also the author of a new book, Of Fear and Strangers, A History of Xenophobia, which has recently been published here in the UK by Yale University Press. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, George. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. To begin, I I just wanted to ask, when you first set out to write this book, What was your understanding of the word
3: xenophobia and what did you assume its origins would be? You know, I think I assumed what everyone assumed that the word meant fear of immigrants and strangers and that the history was one that went all the way back to, you know, primal man or at the very least uh, Greek antiquity since the word was a composite of Greek terms and both of those things turned out to be utterly wrong. And and so when I really looked into it, it turned out that the first usages of the term were very eccentric, hardly used at all. Uh, and in medical context, uh, it was the birth of the phobias. The birth of the phobias starts around 1870 when a lot of doctors start to suggest that there is a discrete illness called a phobia, whether it's claustrophobia, agoraphobia. And once that train started going, it really left the station. So a lot of doctors started to name a lot of things as phobias, but it was used in that context. It was, it was again, eccentric, about to die. Uh, the second context was uh, a usage in uh, concerns about ultranationalism, so that there was a usage that goes back to the 18th century of, of anglophobia, or a Francophobia, and people would talk about these nations that had an irrational animus towards each other and would go to war again and again, and in that context, again, around 1880, people started to talk about these unstable nation states that were so fragile that they organized themselves and solidified themselves by hating everybody, and that was, for instance, Romania, it was said, was xenophobic. Of course it's such an exaggeration that very few people kind of rallied to this usage and both of those ways of thinking about xenophobia both as a discrete medical illness and as a form of uh, uh, extreme ultranationalism were you know about to die when a new context emerged in which this word was repurposed as the kind of p- missing piece of a complex puzzle and the complex puzzle was the second wave of globalization and colonialism I mean, in the book, you you kind of highlight this moment. You did a bit of digging in the newspapers,
2: and there's a French journalist who's talking about the Boxer Rebellion in China. Could you elaborate on that?
3: Yeah, that's one of those moments that historians kind of pinch themselves because you can't quite believe it happened. I was quite convinced that I was never going to find the uh, person who actually made the term go viral. The term goes viral in uh, a French newspaper called Le Constitutionnel in uh, the summer of 1900, and suddenly it's in all the French newspapers, and it's basically used to describe the Boxer Rebellion in China. Uh, it is said that the boxers in China are xenophobes, and that spread the term everywhere. So I had mapped that out. I had found that, uh, and unfortunately, those articles were unsigned in, in those French newspapers, and so that first one was unsigned. And so I was quite sure that that there was no way I was going to determine who actually coined the term for this usage. Uh, I knew that they had gotten a uh, you know a dispatch from Shanghai, and that probably and that there was you know some someone who took that dispatch from one of the central uh, you know routers like Reuters and sent it back out, and suddenly everyone was talking about xenophobia. Uh, and then, as you say, I, 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 you know, I hit pay dirt, uh, because we now have these very powerful search engines and I found a 1915 cranky letter to the globe where, by a guy named Jean-Martin de Centur. he had a number of different names and he's a, he's a crank who's a, gr- you know, grammarian and, uh, a kind of know-it-all, uh, who, uh, corrects the the, the editors about a misusage of a term, and he goes into the Latin of it, and then as an aside he says, "Oh, it's very funny how words sometimes get accepted into the into the common discourse." I was the one who coined the term xenophobia in 1900 for the boxers, and now it's even in dictionaries. So that was a, a you know a kind of a wow moment for me. Uh, And I, you know, I dug up the fact that this guy was, in fact, at Reuters. He was a stenographer who uh, was getting these, you know, telephonic and telegraphic input and then sending them out to different uh, uh, newspapers. And so, uh, you know, I can't be 100 percent sure that he's not just bragging, but Why he would brag about something that no one even cared about 15 years later and no one even remembered uh, is is beyond me. So I came to to the conclusion that, in fact, Jean-Martin de Santour had repurposed this term, which did exist beforehand, as the missing piece of the colonialist puzzle. This was why people, indigenous people, rebelled against the colonial uh, uh, occupation. It was because they were xenophobic.
2: Absolutely. And yes, I mean, it would be a strange thing to brag about, wouldn't it? Um, (laughs) And yeah, it's it's that notion, isn't it? That the use of the word xenophobia is xenophobic. How is it tied to racial science around that time?
3: That's That's a perfect question. It's precisely tied to racial science so that this term seemed to not be utterly ironic, as you say, xenophobic use of xenophobia. It seemed to be simply real because of uh, the biology of uh, racial science. The biology of racial science, which simply said there are these primitive races. They have this primitive equation, all strangers are enemies, that probably goes back And here we have the just-so stories that people still throw out at us about, like, tribes of primal men throwing rocks at other tribes, and that's how they survived. So this is a primitive uh, trait that civilized races have emerged from, but that these other uncivilized races have not emerged from. And that's why they attack us, not because we take their land, not because we occupy... You know their 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 cities and towns and 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 try to reshape their cultures, but because they have this irrational need to attack strangers who after all are coming just to civilize them
2: and when do people particularly in the west when do people start to begin poking holes in that idea you know that perhaps maybe we are xenophobes ourselves
3: yeah exactly so that's that's exactly what i try to map out this kind of countercurrent that develops into a kind of uh ethic that eventually flips this term and and takes it takes it um as its own and and that starts really you can go back to the earliest kinds of uh, attacks on uh, racism in empire. And I go back as a kind of prehistory to the story to uh, Bartholomew de las Casas and the Spanish Empire, uh, where he starts to say, we are the ones who aren't Christians and these natives from America are the ones who are pure and Christian, and we're killing them in droves by demonizing them. So there's a backstory, and interestingly, people around 1900 who start to poke holes in this second kind of iteration where the xenophobic word is being used point back to Las Casas and say, we're taking our kind of, Moral uh, encouragement and inspiration from people like Las Casas, but then you have, you know, in the great imperial countries, in 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 Great Britain and in, in France, uh, figures uh, who uh, begin to oppose this. And of course, you know, one of the great ones uh, in uh, in your country is. Uh, the immigrant writer uh, Joseph Conrad, whose Heart of Darkness makes a great impact on people. It's very powerful. But then what happens is it ramifies with the report that Roger Casement brings back from the Congo, where these people who are supposedly uh, simply primitives who we must oppress because, in fact, they attack us as uh, uh, as strangers— are uh, being uh, it is essentially a genocide, so the the terms start to look shaky and xenophobia starts to be repurposed by liberals and socialists. Why liberals and socialists? Because their ideologies gave them a kind of compass. That directed them away from the racist uses of these terms. Why liberalism? Because of toleration. Liberal toleration helped guide people towards the notion that perhaps there was an equality in human beings that should be at the fundament and that these differences should not be essential, but rather tolerated. Uh, and socialists, because again, they saw a transnational notion of, of, of equality. So, you have people uh, who, in uh, literary figures like Mark Twain, attacking American imperialism. You have Leo Tolstoy attacking Russian imperialism. You have uh, a number of figures, uh, Morel and others, uh, in Great Britain, and, and of course Zola and uh, those who uh, who took a very uh, harsh look at the Dreyfus affair in France you start to have a momentum that builds a counterculture, if you will, and these folks talk about each other. They point to Las Casas. They point to each other, and they lead in a tradition that goes down to Raphael Lemkin, who after the Holocaust coins the term genocide and points to these other figures back 100 years saying we're all in concert opposing this notion that they're xenophobic when, in fact, we are. Uh, you know, the irony of this came home because racial science started to collapse. and people said, "If it's simply about primitive race, why is the guy next door to me doing it? Right? The Brothers League in British Brothers League in the East End. Why is the anti-Semite in Paris doing it? Uh, th- that it, it didn't it started to seem ripe for irony that this was only about them when clearly the same phenomena was happening at home as these colonized immigrants start to flow back to the metropoles and come to London and come to Paris and are encountered by uh, a lot of bigotry and bias. Yeah. And you you mentioned there a bit earlier, you
2: mentioned Roger Caseman, and I'm not sure he's a figure that that many people will be familiar with. Could you talk a bit about what he did and how the British government reacted?
3: Yes. Roger Caseman is a fascinating character. Uh, He, like Conrad, uh, was in the Congo to make money. Uh, and he started out working for King Leopold, who had taken the Congo as his personal province. It was actually not Belgian. It was King Leopold's. And they uh, they both met. Uh, they spent a, a short period of time together. Conrad went back and wrote Heart of Darkness. Casement stayed there and is, was eventually appointed to a, a government role, and then was given the uh, job of assessing these rumors about things that were happening that were very ugly in the Congo. So he does this, and he returns to London with a 63-page report that he uh, says uh, is so shocking that uh, he fears for what will happen to it when he actually makes it public. He goes and meets with Conrad. He reminds him that they were together uh, and uh, tries to get support And eventually, uh, he, uh, also, uh, recruits Morel to start these Congo reform associations, which start to spread around, uh, the world. The report eventually, even in a um, diluted form, uh, is, uh, explosive and it starts to point to genocide. Casement was, an uh, Irishman who, uh, also felt that the Irish were uh, under colonial rule. And so this man who was now uh, feted as a great, great hero of Great Britain ends up uh, being hung as a traitor. He had uh, decided to smuggle arms from Germany into Ireland during World War One and was caught uh, then it, it, the story gets even uh, darker because people leak his diaries that say that he is a gay and that in some of these trips uh, to uh, Latin America where he had done another kind of investigative uh, trip uh, to find out what was happening to the Putumaya Indians, uh, that he was having sex with, uh, with uh, men. So there was very little chance for Roger Casement who was uh went rapidly from being a culture hero to uh a traitor and a villain and he was hung.
2: Yeah and it's a, so it's a really tragic story and I mean, the the first section of the book is really about the history of the term, whereas the second is kind of about how people attempt to address it. Um, Exactly. As a psychiatrist, was that a particularly interesting sort of meaty challenge for you to explore?
3: It was. And I think that, you know, having done the work I've done prior to this prepared me for thinking about the difference between a term and its conceptual underpinning. So the first half of the book really is about the kind of emergence of this term. And it's, and it's kind of f- f- meanings that are quite, you know, c- phenomenal. They're, they're, they're super, they're, they're the meanings that are, don't actually say anything about why this happens or not much. So then I pivoted to, uh, well, what were the conceptual frameworks that people tried to bring to bear to understand why this was happening and to see if we could stop it. And that really uh, takes off in the 20s and then becomes a kind of international emergency after the Holocaust, where a lot of the greatest minds uh, in the West are trying to sort out how to make sure the Holocaust doesn't happen again.
2: You mentioned there the, the 1920s. In the book, you, you kick off this second section, don't you, with talking about John B. Watson and the, the famous Little Albert experiment at Johns Hopkins. Yes. How
3: influential is behaviorism? You, you know, a good, good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is behaviorism has a model that tells us how to cure this. It tells us how it happens It tells us how to cure it. And I think we still use it today. So behaviorism says, you know, you get a stimuli. It could be a traumatic stimuli. You uh, associate it with, misassociate it with a scapegoat. And uh, you're off and running for the rest of your life. You have a scapegoat. So after watson people would go out and try to find okay you hate black people what happened to you when you were young oh yes there was a black man who scared me ever since then i've been scared and and this is a critical point fight or flight is two things flight and fight scared and aggressive towards black people so that was a very clear model and it said okay little albert we can create a phobia we can cure a phobia how do we cure it? Exposure and habituation. So you integrate people, you bring them together. They gradually realize all black people are not like that black man that scared me. And then the phobia goes away. The problem with that model, beautiful models, we still use it, right? It's, it is the uh, underpinning of why desegregation was so important in America is that actually very few people who are bigoted have had any negative experience with the people they're bigoted against. And so Emery Bogardus went out and he did all of this leg work. And he said, you know, the problem is a very small percentage of the people who are bigoted have had such a traumatic experience. So then the question is, well, how did they get these ideas? And then that, that's when you see the shift from a beha- purely behaviorist model to a cognitive model. This is also a passive model. It's something where you know, things happen to people. And that model uh, is organized around the notion of the stereotype, which I was astonished to find. And I'm in the field, but I, I hadn't seen this written about, was coined by a political journalist, not by a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Uh, the stereotype was coined by the f- very influential political uh, thinker and journalist Walter Lippmann when he saw how propaganda worked in World War I. He was very worried about how public opinion could be swayed and how publics could be urged on to murderous campaigns by negative portrayals of, in this case, other nationalities. And he saw that the emergence of film was going to make this particularly Uh, dangerous. So he coined this notion from printing. It's a printing notion from the printing presses of a stereotype as a kind of cognitive coin that gets passed around and that people simply imbibe. And if one of these is very, very negative about another ethnicity or race or gender, um, so be it. It simply is. You don't have to have a traumatic experience to have a very negative view of, for instance, in America, black people. You simply have to go to the right films.
2: Yeah I mean in the book the classic example is the Birth of a Nation which I think is 1915 what sort of impact does that have
3: yeah I think uh, birth of a nation shocked a lot of people you know it's the first movie that was ever screened in the white house by woodrow wilson and uh it, it you know it gave it was technically brilliant so it was a kind of showstopper in that way very innovative and it involved hideous Morally reprehensible notions in, of Black people. So people like Lipman saw, wow, this is a really powerful, dangerous tool film. And we need that way of kind of thinking about what's happening here. So psychologists really take up the notion of the stereotype and start to map out how stereotypes might be uh, infecting uh, communities and helping to create you know, communities by common beliefs. Communities, after all, have boundaries. They have common beliefs and they have things that we believe that you don't believe. And so he could see how stereotypes not only affected individuals, but groups. And uh, that was all, you know, very important to put out there because again, there's something you can do about it. Like with the behaviorist model, cognitive models of xenophobia say, if you educate them this way, you can re-educate them Right, so in school, we can teach kids that bias and bigotry is wrong. We can show them the effects of uh, the KKK and of lynching and of the Holocaust, and we can educate them uh, to pivot against stereotypes, even stereotypes from their own community. So, again, this is a model with an ameliorative um, kind of uh, solution. Both of these are passive models, right? They're both things that happen to people. People are kind of passive containers of these. And so if you change the environment, you can change the people and solve the problem. They're both, therefore, pretty encouraging. Unfortunately, they're not the whole picture.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: I realized kind of there's no way to tell the story without telling some of my own story. So that was a personal journey that this book, in a way, uh, encouraged me to go on.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
2: You mentioned earlier the Second World War, obviously the horrors of the Holocaust. And there is a new term, isn't there, coined in the wake of the Second World War by Raphael Lemkin, genocide. Could you describe how that comes about?
3: Yes. So, uh, you know, there are terms that are being uh, coined to try to understand new phenomenon. And my argument about xenophobia is that it is in response to the second wave of globalization, that the notion that the stranger is an enemy is a catastrophe if, in fact, the world is globalizing. It means we're always going to be at war. Similarly, uh, the term, uh, the number of terms start to take a 180 degree pivot backwards, right? So that anti-Semite is at first a positive term. It becomes a very negative term. Racism is a positive term. It means you're proud of your race until it becomes le racisme and it becomes bigotry against races. Xenophobia takes that same turn, starts out as it's about them. Now it's about us. And Lemkin builds on that. He wants a term that will fill a gap because at that point there was no term for or there was no law against power it powers that discriminated against even murdered communities within their nation state it wasn't a crime uh that international courts could deal with because it was internal and so he wanted uh he was obsessed with this at a pretty young age he was a polish jew who uh became a lawyer and was concerned about what happened to the Huguenots in uh France and the you know Christians in Rome. And and you know, as he's thinking about these things, it's starting to happen all around him to his people. And uh he in fact ends up losing over 40 of his relatives to the Holocaust somehow by an extraordinary uh journey through woods and with diplomatic connections gets uh, out of uh, Poland and gets to the United States and starts advocating for this new term genocide, which talks about the attempt to not just murder a people, but destroy their whole culture, to wipe their culture and people from the map. And so that becomes something that he advocates, looking back to Las Casas, looking back to people like uh, Caseman, looking back to others who give him a sense of being part of a lineage of folks who have insisted, even against their own culture, that there is an ethical stance here that is is embedded in a notion of xenophobia that must be upheld. And genocide is the most extreme kind of xenophobic uh, historical occurrence. And he puts it on the map. He gets the UN to kind of adopt it with a kind of tireless campaign And uh, we owe that term to him. Unfortunately, uh, it was a necessary term because it would continue to occur. Indeed. And in this
2: immediate post-war period, where do the works of people like Sartre fit into this story?
3: So yeah, there you know, I said before that there were two models of the mind that were passive and accounted for this kind of xenophobic bigotry, the the, the behavioral and the cognitive. But there were two that were rather active. And they said it doesn't just come from the outside, it comes from the inside. And those two were Psychoanalysis and then French phenomenology. So psychoanalysis really used the notion of projection, then a negative projection. You project out not just like I'm like you, which was the initial meaning of projection from antiquity, but the Freudian notion of I project out all the things I'm ashamed of and hate about myself onto you, and that's used by uh, folks like Adorno to try to understand how uh, internally driven hatred creates xenophobia. Doesn't change with the environment so easily. The second one is, as you say, goes to Sartre and his reading of Hegel and the master-slave dialectic, where they start to really talk about the need in an interpersonal phenomenological way to reify, to make a thing out of what they call famously the other. We've heard this term now, you know, all over our our culture, but that's the the context by which the German notion of the other becomes part of our thinking about othering, how we turn minorities into objects rather than give them subjective voice, and how there is an interpersonal battle, Sartre thought, between two uh, beings where one was going to be master and the other was going to be slave, where one was going to be subject and the other was going to be object. And that could translate to understanding political phenomenon. So the two great outcomes of that work were not so so directly from Sartre's work, but from, uh, Beauvoir's work, Simone de Beauvoir, who, initiated the second wave of feminism with her great work on the woman as other. And then Sartre's work was very influential in uh, colonial uh, liberation movements, where they saw themselves as uh, othered by colonial powers. Indeed. And I want to move
2: more towards the present day now. Um, Just in terms of terminology, in the book you talk about separating xenophobia from other anxiety. Could you explain that?
3: Yeah, look, I, I think that we, that these terms, a lot, a bunch of them, I, I think racism as well, has be, they've become very bloated and they mean many different things that imply different underlying models. And I do think that we do ourselves a disservice by not dissecting out what we mean. So I would say, first of all, there are a whole bunch of words for, that that designate the victims of bigotry and bias. And those are very important historically. Racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, add to the list. Those name the victims. And those are very important. Xenophobia, I would argue, is an underlying word that if you accept it, helps us think about the victimizer, not the victim. And when we think about xenophobia, I thought that 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 it you know that in itself parsed out into three different models when I actually finished my survey of the different conceptual underpinnings of xenophobia, that these are all in different silos. And I tried to break down the silos and just say, let's think about all these things together. How did they help us think about this complex phenomenon? And I... So I came to the conclusion that there are three different tiers, that there's something that I called other anxiety, which is, I would say, ontological, fancy word for saying it's just the nature of being human, to be a little anxious that I can't read your mind and you can't read mine. And that frisson of anxiety is part of being human. We have ways of managing it, language, dialogue, uh, recognition of, of the other person, and it's part of life. I would argue that other anxiety also includes stereotypes and even some of the fight or flight stuff that the behaviorists talk about. And that all of that is of a piece, that it is stuff that we all have, that we all have to manage, and that it uh, shouldn't be, you know, uh, something that we make people into pariahs for or shame people for. It should be something that we all work to educate ourselves out of. Stereotypes, I would argue, are absolutely universal. It just depends on who your stereotype is about. And one of the most telling moments in this is when I came across Fans Fanon said, you know, he was a black psychiatrist and he went to Algeria and he came to this recognition. He said, you know, the French hate the Jews who hate the Arabs who hate the blacks. And I thought, and you could just keep going. So part of the notion of thinking about xenophobia is to challenge us, who's your stranger? Who's the other anxiety that you have? Now, I would suggest that that is very different from the driven internal need for a hated other, which I say is the kind of pure xenophobia. That is the stuff that's driven by projection. That is the stuff that in subcultures of shame demands superiority over some other. And that is the stuff that's very difficult to change and that really should be um, thought of as qualitatively different because, you know, habituation and exposure doesn't work. You can send these people to anti-racist you know uh training sessions, and they'll zone out and they won 't listen uh These are folks who have have a commitment because it helps their own inner serenity it gives them uh, a sense of being free of their own shame and guilt to have an other that they hate uh so that is a complex problem, and then the third level is structural where it 's really not about an individual wanting to be xenophobic but long past struggles that have been embedded in laws and institutions that when you look at them closely lead to xenophobic outcomes and those are you know w- w- the kinds of things where you know laws and institutions need to be reexamined uh, and and the folks who might be in those institutions might not at all be xenophobic they're just following their feet but in fact their feet are leading them down the road to Uh, xenophobic outcomes. So I I, I thought that it was very important to make these three different distinctions because I think they have three different ways of approaching problems and uh, also give us a focus on what the most difficult problems are and what some of the problems are that we have answers to that we need to have policies that they um, support.
2: And finally, I think it would be remiss of me not to mention that there is an intensely personal angle to some of this book you know, as the child of immigrants to the United States. I mean, you, you, if you don't mind me saying, so it's a really beautiful prologue you write, this um, Thank you. memoir of visiting Lebanon. And then at the end, you talk about going to the Pyrenees with your wife
3: and you invoke Walter Benjamin. You know, I, I think uh, it was a funny process for me because I came upon the idea for the book Without thinking at all about my heritage, I long ago stopped really thinking about myself as an the child of an immigrant, of immigrants. And I realized, kind of, there's no way to tell the story without telling some of my own story. So that was a personal journey that this book, in a way, uh, encouraged me to go on, and encouraged me to uh, remember how how deeply uh, affected I was by the fact that. First, my grandfather came to the United States, then went back to Lebanon and stayed there, trapped by World War One. How my parents were raised by different colony in different colonial traditions in Lebanon. My mother in the French, my father in the in the English and the American. And so that this story I was telling had had you know actually uh, been deeply formative for my family. Uh, we came to the United States in the fifties. And I grew up in a household where we spoke Arabic and French and English, and ate Lebanese food. And and you know, then I talk about the horror of the Lebanese civil war and and um, uh, my aunt who was murdered, and uh, my my cousins who needed to get out. Uh, so watching a culture that was pluralistic fall apart, fall into uh, hatred of difference. Uh, and the way that was stoked by external forces, and they were so vulnerable to creating, you know, a a country where there was a Rubik's cube of militias and and so many different lines across which you would be killed for being different. It was a uh, it was a deeply distressing time, and uh, and I you know unfortunately it's uh, becoming uh, worrisome in Lebanon that it might be a deeply distressing time again. So that was very important to me. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, I kind of the way the children of immigrants can, I had, you know, put it in the back burner for a long time uh, until I decided to write this book when kind of my, uh, my writerly superego, my writerly conscience would not forbade me from writing a book like this without uh, speaking a little bit more about myself. And then you mentioned the the coda where I uh, finished the book in France. Uh, My wife grew up in a border village in the Pyrenees and how we were surrounded by uh, both the memory of uh, World War II and the memory of the Spanish Civil War where many people had fled to our village across the mountains. So that was a time where I finished the book and was filled with the sense of how powerful These stories were of exile, of refugees, of being without a home. And uh, the figure of Walter Benjamin, the the famous story of Walter Benjamin, trying to cross the mountains right near our house, being caught, uh, was always a very moving one to me that for some reason I never tried to go on that walk until I finished that book, at which point it seemed uh, meaningful to try and uh, take that path which was quite arduous and I didn't make, but uh, was uh, a way for me to think about uh, what had happened before and my hope that it would never happen again.
2: Well, George, thank you very much. And I just want to say again that George's new book, or Fear and Strangers, A History of Xenophobia, is out now, published by Yale University Press. Thank you very much.
3: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when James Fox will be diving into the intriguing history of humanity's relationship with colour.